Welcome investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamotko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, folks, to a special edition of the Absolute Return Podcast. On today's show, we offer a new podcast format. We recorded a live clubhouse discussion called State of the Markets with me, Julian Klamachko, Mike Kesslering, Jeff Baker, also known as Common Stock Warrants, and SPAC Guru. The hosts discuss and debate the present and future of SPACs, M&A, IPOs, warrants, and more. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please leave us a review, which will encourage us to do more State of the Markets episodes. Hello and happy afternoon, everybody. All right, great. So let's kick off the first State of the Markets. I'm excited to have a wide-ranging discussion with the Guru and Jeff on the line. I'm sure we'll be focused on SPACs and warrants, which are both highly topical, tons of interesting things happening there. Prior to that, I really want to set the stage on a number of things that I'm noticing with respect to the state of the market, specifically on the macro front. I just want to set the stage in terms of rates. I'm pretty sure rates are heading higher. We bottomed at 50 basis points last summer. Now we're at 160, 165. I think we'll reach 200 rates. Uh, The Fed is going to be hiking when? I don't know. I don't think they'll be able to hold off too much longer into 2022. So that's something for investors to keep in mind. The implications are that obviously this is negative for bonds. So if I was uh, an investor in bonds, I'd be looking to lighten up with respect to that allocation. And then with respect to stocks in general, it's mixed. It's positive for some, negative for others, obviously beneficial for financials. You've seen banks on a tear this year. I believe the bank ETF is up about 22% year to date after over a decade of underperformance, basically ever since like, you know, pre-2008. Banks have largely been slaughtered. So it's a bit of a mean reversion trade there. I believe banks will continue to outperform just given my view on interest rates. Also value stocks, you've seen a big bounce back in value. That is another trend that I think can continue. Value and banks are kind of tied at the hip. Many banks are value stocks, but you know, growth or glamour outperform value for so long that I think the tides are turning on that one. And certainly the market is agreeing with me there. One thing I wanted to touch on that's related to that is M&A, mergers and acquisitions. I recently put out a note on the M&A side that The amount of regional bank mergers is unbelievable. The most I've ever seen in my career. I think there's eight just this month in terms of public bank M&A. And it's really just a function of their stock price and the macro environment that is excellent for banks. And I think that will continue to see that trend happen. The other really interesting story that I'm following pretty closely in M&A is the railway hostile takeover battle of the Canadians. So you have uh, CP, Canadian Pacific, and CN, Canadian National, both battling it out for uh, Kansas City Southern, KS, 
KSU um, or Kansas City, and that that's a very interesting uh, takeover battle to want to watch there with respect to who's ultimately going to be the winner on Kansas City Southern, especially since it's uh, two Canadian players battling it out for one of the last remaining U.S. railways that's really available. So consolidation in the railway space, probably the last of which we'll ever see in the public markets. So that is one to watch as well. I wanted to touch quickly on crypto, clearly in a bull market, still a fan of Bitcoin. The others, Dogecoin, I know know there's a lot of fans out there. I'm less uh, keen on that one, but it's an interesting notion that ultimately money is what everyone makes it. If people want to make Dogecoin money, then I suppose it is money. But I'll let other experts cover Dogecoin because I've never bought it and don't really have any near-term plans to do it in the crypto space. Long-term bull on Bitcoin, and I continue to own it, and I think it'll keep going higher. As for IPOs, direct listings, that market continues to do well. I mean, IPO wide, IPO window wide open for non-SPACs and direct listings. We haven't seen it take off like many were potentially expecting. We saw the Coinbase direct listing, which was certainly successful for all the insiders and venture capitalists plowing out hand over fist on the first day, which was truly a sight to be seen. And you largely had, unfortunately, retail buying, uh, suffering pretty big losses as it dropped from the starting highs. But we can touch on that. And then uh, some themes that I wanted to touch on, on the SPAC side, lots of interesting dynamics happening there. Uh, Number one, on the IPOs. We saw the IPO window in SPACs just slightly crack open today after two weeks of zero IPOs. We did see two come to market today, both on the smaller side, trade at global, only 40 million, the smallest SPAC out there. That one dropped 1.4% on its opening day. And then Big Sky Growth Partners dropping to 9.96. We bought some in the Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF. Got to disclose that. Buying some BSKYU uh, at the uh, 9.96 level here, which we think is you know, potentially attractive play there. But nonetheless, I don't think it's going to be gangbusters with respect to SPAC IPOs, just given we haven't seen anything for a while. And the two that did come out still indicate to me that the market's oversaturated, oversupplied, and there's not a lot of demand. We look at first day volumes and back in the bull market, like the crazy frenzy of January, February, most SPAC IPOs were trading 30 to 40% of their float on their IPO day. These ones, I mean, trade up global, the volume was just awful. It was (laughs) not even 1%, but then we look at Big Sky Growth Partners, and it was barely above, uh, geez, 10% uh, of that volume. So not even close to the frenzy that we're seeing in terms of one-day flipping by hedge funds. So that dynamic is gone. These things are no longer oversubscribed. So that's the IPO discussion. In terms of performance, I continue to stick with my bottom call, March 24th. That has held thus far and positive for SPAC investors. We track the entire universe in our Accelerate SPAC index. That has been up five days in a row, and we haven't seen uh, five up days in a row in a while. There's small up days, but green, nonetheless, haven't had a big down day in a while. So performance 
is slowly but surely recovering on the M&A side. I've had some interesting business combinations, not much of a SPAC pop these days. We had that Galileo acquisition deal announced this week, Shapeways. We actually do have a position in that one, um, long held ever since you know, probably a year ago or so. Bought that one at a discount. But this is one that's really struggling to get above, above net asset value. I see NAV is 1008. Now today it was up a bit, probably off the fact that ARC ETFs bought one third of the volume on deal announcement yesterday. There's some other interesting deals over the past month. One specifically that I wanted to touch on, the rice acquisition deal with uh, Aria Energy, Arkea Energy, Landfill Gas, or Renewable Natural Gas. That one exhibiting a good SPAC pop, uh, market liking it. The units are trading at 18 and change, the common at 16 and change. So that deal, like it, it signifies that SPACs aren't dead. The SPAC pop has not gone away. It's just much more selective and it depends on the type of opportunity. One that we do own and we've held basically since the IPO, MUDS, Mudrick Capital Acquisition 2, another winning SPAC deal announced this month with respect to the TOPS transaction. Now that signifies that the market is being highly selective. It's not like it was three, four months ago where every business combination would go up 20, 50%. Market's being real selective here. Uh, but those are some that I wanted to highlight winners and losers with respect to definitive agreements in the SPAC business combination space. Other thing we want to discuss, the warrant issue. I know, Jeff, we're going back and forth on Twitter with respect to, you know, what's the future of SPAC warrants with the SEC cracking down on the entire warrant structure? I was thinking we'd see more and more rights, but Ultimately proven wrong with the IPOs today, both came out with warrants, and we actually did see some S1s filed uh, today. In fact, this morning, one sponsor group put out four S1s. Perhaps they didn't get the memo of the market being oversupplied, but I digress. Um, that's kind of what I wanted to table in terms of agenda for discussion today. Uh, where do you guys want to start? Do you want to hear from the guru himself? Hey, Julian. Hello, everybody. Boy, that's a lot to unpack, Julian. So, uh, though my name is Spackaroo, I do know a few things about other things. So, um, but I'm not an expert in, I'm not an expert in anything, but, so what, why don't you kick it off, Julian? Which topic do you want to, you want to un unpack first? Perhaps we could touch on, you know, the future of the SPAC structure. You know, are warrants back? Do we think this warrant issue is behind us? I see that many have figured out the accounting. We're seeing S1s being filed again. We're seeing IPOs happening. Uh, because previously, the last ones we saw were August 14th, I'm sorry, April 14th, and those are two both warrantless SPACs, but we saw two today that came out with the classic unit structure featuring uh, common shares and a fraction of a warrant. So how about Jeff? What are your thoughts on uh, SPAC 3.0, what we're going to see in terms of future of the, st of the structure? Um, I, I, honestly, I think, I think that uh, the, the general uh, dialogue got ahead of what was actually happening would be my gut feel. We genuinely, uh, both me and the Pops, we, we have a, uh, a pretty unified front here. And so he, he's got a background as an auditor for the IRS. And so... When we, were, when we were looking at this, it really, what are you really going to do? 
I mean, at the, at the end of the day, what is the SEC going to do? The relationship to how many warrants are in question, uh, how much would need to be restated, whether or not this ever goes outside the accounting firms. You know, we just didn't see a major red flag yet. Now, that doesn't mean that things can't happen. And in and, and that scenario, what do you do? Well, you adapt to the market because we don't really have a choice. Um, but we've never been concerned that this was a real issue uh, other, other than outside of an accounting issue. And, and like you said, most of them are already figuring it out. When it comes to the future, we just we, we don't see uh, this kicker structure changing uh, for any reason. And there's a reason these things have been around for over 100 years. Um, the warrants are, you know, they're, they're baked into, honestly, even the government uh, contracts that go out in the TARP bailout, in the auto bailout, in the bailout of AIG. Guess what? In, in the contract, guess what there is? There's warrants. Oh, interesting to know. The Canadian government just bailed out uh, the airlines. And guess what they got in that deal? Warrants. Exactly. Guess what we're <laughs> expecting yeah, today? Six months. Is anybody that was bailed out with larger than X amount of billions is going to have that same government cookie-cutter contract that's going to come out. We're going to see the government recapture their loss by selling those into the public market, and then we're going to have access to them. So uh, a lot of those were like 10-year-long warrants, um, everything from the banks. to I mean, they were they were all great warrants. So, uh, no, we, we see that coming. And I guess my point is there, there's always going to be, um, you know, the argument of, of whether or not the, the, this condition's unfair, that condition's unfair. But the minute you start putting the spotlight on the warrants, well, now you got to also start talking about options and, and possibly even, okay, so what's the liability of all the management's options that they're due in the event these things take place? you got a lot of speculative aspects there as well. So um, yeah, that's just, I, I, I guess there's a scenario where you really have to pay attention to that. In the time frames, I'm going to say that most of us are in this, and that might actually not be you, Julie, um, because y'all, y'all do have a much longer time horizon. But, but for most of us, we're out of the party before a lot of that becomes a concern. So I, I just don't see a whole lot changing. I think we're going to still see, um, you know, the, the, the status quo right now is that the vast majority of these offerings are uh, half, quarter, or third warrant. Um, you've got a marginal percentage that are, are below that, fifth warrant and under, um, and including the ones with no warrants that, that equal up to even just this year's IPOs about 20% uh, involve a minuscule amount of warrants. So um, I, I just don't see that structure changing uh, uh, whatsoever. Honestly, it's probably the missing component in a lot of the the performance reviews of, of the SPAC investment and, and when people come in as a unit, uh, not taking into account any of that warrant uh, gain that is made, whether it, it be through the... Uh, uh, the original unit or, or, you know, selling it at redemption or otherwise, all of that's on top of it if you're in that initial unit IPO. I mean, and I'm sure you know that, right? Y'all do play it that way, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, for sure. And so, go go ahead, Mike. Oh, no, I was I was just going to say, like, do you do you see any potential for more right, rights issuances? And, and along with that, outside of that, from an investor's perspective, if you're seeing some of this confusion brought by the SEC uh, resulting in some, some prime buying opportunities in, in the warrant space. Yeah, did you see prices come down? Right. No doubt about it. I think everybody that, that really knows warrants right now, we are looking at some of these prices that 
that it, it is still explosive potential because they've been so oversold and depressed. I mean, there, there really are a lot of examples that, that recently you were able to acquire and even still sell on the announcement uh, for, for very good gains. Um, I mean, Muds is a great example. I mean, just a week before that, it was 51 cents. So, I mean, that, that really is a great example of a 10-bagger that came out of nowhere. Yeah, and that was a deal that was unexpected because the first MUDs, which ha- shared the same ticker, Mudrick Capital Acquisition 1, they did that Highcroft mining deal, which you know hasn't done uh, all that well. Last time I checked, it was in the single digits, I don't know, four or five bucks. Oh, but... no, it was awful. It was <laughs> awful. And I, honestly, my impression of the, the second MUDs was that Jason, being such a savvy guy, I believe he's Harvard Law educated, real smart guy. We did an interview with him, and I just felt like he was going to come swinging, you know, from the get-go and look for a massive change because I don't believe that's exactly what he wanted to transpire either. Um, well, well, another thing that you saw with that is because I think he learned from his past mistake and he did have to gain some of his uh, street cred back, it was an overfunded it was an overfunded spec. Yeah, ten fifteen plus half a warrant. You don't see that very often. No, and, and I mean that's that's I mean I think that's the the missing ingredient for a lot of people picking them now is that sometimes the failures do lead people to much better successes. I mean that's entrepreneurialism one oh one. Uh, we all learn quite a bit from the failures, unfortunately. Um, but there is only one way to learn it, and that is to fall down. Um, <laughs> And, and I'm sure anybody that started a business can, can agree with that sentiment. And now, a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest-growing alternative investment solution providers, with a suite of institutional-caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund, symbol ARB on the TSX, is the world's first SPAC-focused ETF, with a diversified portfolio of SPAC and merger arbitrage opportunities in an easy-to-use, low-cost ETF. The Accelerate Arbitrage Fund ETF trades under the symbol ARB on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Yeah, so speaking of warrant coverage, and I think that is one of the reasons why the two new issues that, to me, were really signaling where the market is. Is the market ready for more SPAC IPOs? So the Big Sky one, one quarter warrant, and the trade-up global deal, only $40 million, and typically on these these small ones that are backed by Chinese entrepreneurs, typically those come with overfunded trust, but this one did not. And it only had half a warrant. Both those trading relatively poorly. And I've been calling for the reversal of a trend. And the trend that's been reversed over the past six to 12 months has been a decline in the warrants that you get per unit. Uh, Thus far, we really haven't seen that reversed at all. But as more and more IPO buyers, it's, it's ultimately the investor's fault because they are not demanding enough from the sponsors in terms of effectively compensation. So what do you guys think? And we'll start off with the guru on where are we going to head with respect to warrant coverage? Like long term, it's been a declining trend. But I think within that declining trend, it may be somewhat cyclical. Yeah. Back a little bit. Um, I think what we've seen now with the SEC, and we, we've seen this now 
through many administrations for for decades now. Is they're they're a reactionary firm. They're they're reactionary to headlines, and with all of the crap that's been going on, and whether it's meme stocks or congressional hearings, you know, SPACs SPACs have drawn a lot of attention. And the old saying is, the spouting whale gets harpooned. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, so so the SEC was in a position where they felt they felt they had to do something, and they have to basically flex their muscles and show that they're still a government organization that that has their finger on the pulse. With that being said, they, they created this uh, procedural uh, chicane, if you will, like a, like, a, like a slowdown. And they threw this, this warrant monkey wrench at the SPAC world. And as somebody who is a CEO of a public company and used to give stock uh, employee stock options, you know, the old mark to the market, and you, you, could, you could get somebody their options, you know, at the market or above the market, but when they start being, they start getting priced below current market. You take certain hits, um, you know, the, the CPAs and and your CFO. You know, they, they go absolutely crazy. You know, there's balance sheet issues. But as I started to say, a lot of them are procedural, and I think that we've seen that with the specs. I think I think that the the throat punch happened. Everybody took a timeout. The smartest law firms and accounting firms. On the planet, with the smartest bankers on the planet, exactly, they all figured it out. They said, "Okay, let's appease, you know, these assholes for lack of a better word." Right. Give them what they want, and the fact of the matter is, you're not stopping the machine. There's too much money. There's too much desire for risk assets, and the SPAC asset group is a class like. You know, like Jeff said, this is not a new thing. People talk about SPACs like like it's the hot new, like the hot new toy. Yeah, it's not. And and like Jeff said, when we when we saw financial collapse, think about what Warren Buffett did. He came into Goldman Sachs and said, "Okay, how much you need? Ten billion dollars. Great. I'm alone, and you're going to give me back this much interest, and you're giving me a warrant. And they took all of these warrants." And, and the government copied what Warren Buffett did when they did the bailouts. Yep. And, and it actually added money to the Treasury. It was a good thing. Yep. It was yep. a good thing you for everyone. You had warrants. You had Bank of America warrants. You had all that stuff. Sure. You had Citibank. You had, you had the Fannie Mae, the Freddie Bank. You had them all. But because of that, not only did the government get paid back their money, they got paid back the interest and, and, and the taxpayer – actually saw a pretty good return on that and it kept it kept industry going and we didn't have a financial collapse they used the tools correctly but when they had to go to their toolbox the warrant was one of the tools that they used yeah and certainly as an ipo investor i like the warrants you know it's a tough pill to swallow when you have a highly credible sponsor who comes out with a warrantless SPAC, and then they do a business combination and the share price trades down to $10. So you basically get no return because the warrant isn't there. Because when even in low quality deals, like we subscribed to some units that had, say, a full warrant coverage, like one for one, and they announce a business combination 
Uh, it's crummy. The market hates it. And we got to redeem. But then our full warrant is worth like a buck. And that adds a buck to the $10 investment. That's a 10% return right there. Some of these high profile sponsors that came out with warrantless SPACs and then announced a business combination. For example, the the largest one ever, it's traded up, but I flagged a couple of weeks ago uh, on the Tama Bravo deal. That one actually dipped below $10 and it had no warrants. So Pretty much IPO investors had nothing to be happy about. And investors who bought in the secondary market, that thing never traded at a discount. It basically was instantly at a double-digit premium. So it's basically like everyone lost in that scenario. There is the argument. And I don't really necessarily agree with this argument because uh, I'll tell you why. People say, oh, it's better if they don't have warrants or they have fewer warrants because there's less dilution. Yes, I agree there's less dilution, but you can think of it in terms of a pie. Now the sponsor and the investor split that pie. When the warrants get taken away, the investor get less of the pie and the sponsor gets more of the pie. I'm all for reducing dilution, but I'm all for, you know, keeping, you know, my economics intact and the sponsor dialing back dilution on their end. They're free to give back some sponsor economics, give up some warrants, um, you know, take a 10% promote instead of 20. So we're seeing, you know, more flexibility there, I think, which is great, but it's a balance and things got a bit out of whack, just given the frenzy and the fact that, you know, in January and February, any sponsor could take a SPAC public and they could do on a very aggressive terms. So as we see the IPO market start to reopen, and I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't think Today is necessarily indicative of a trend, but I'm hoping that we see, you know, some balance of power come back to investors where we start getting, you know, better coverage, one third to one half. I mean, if we can get one third of a warrant on high quality repeat sponsors instead of, you know, one fifth or one quarter, I think, uh, you know, one third, it goes a long way because it protects you in the case of a bad deal, right? And the next thing I wanted to touch on was there are a lot of deals that the market doesn't like outstanding. If you look at any SPAC with a de definitive agreement outstanding, there's a decent chance it's trading below NAV. And so one thing that I'm monitoring closely are redemption levels. So one that recently, I'm not sure if Vesper released NAK Today on their levels. I know Guru were talking about that earlier, but one that I did notice that was trading materially below and continues to do so the uh, GIK Lightning E-Motors deal, they had 59 million redeemed or, or just 29%, which is surprising because even though a lot of these, my point being that a lot of these are trading below NAV, it seems like redemptions won't be all that high, meaning they won't be above, call it a third, at least the ones that I've seen. What are your thoughts on this? Well, for starters, I want to say, um, touch on what you said earlier. These premier sponsors who are coming out with these warrantless specs, and the spec is trading, like you said, the re no retailer is up, no wholesaler is up, and it was a dud for anybody who participated. Well, you know, like I know, you know, the street has a pretty good memory. So, in the event they want to come back and sponsor another deal, it's going to have to be something similar to maybe what we saw with the muds. Maybe they're going to have to go in and, and over-allocate funds to have a trade, you know, more money in escrow and, and over-fund the deal. 
or they're going to have to now rethink their strategy and, and add some warrants back just to get, you know, back to whether it's oversubscribed or, or just fully subscribed. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, money goes where it's treated best and people remember. So when we see these sponsors trip and, and, and fall, if they come back, they're going to have to come back, you know, maybe with their hat in their hand. And, and if they don't, and if they come back and, and they do it again, like you said, the only thing that's going to stop them is if, if the retail and the wholesalers say, no, yeah. we're not doing this. So again, I don't know if we've gotten to that equilibrium yet where that quite has happened. But as you said, people are selectively buying these post announced deals and they don't all just go up. You know, the tide doesn't rise all ships like it did some months ago. Right. And now a word from our sponsor, Accelerate, one of Canada's most innovative and fastest growing alternative investment solution providers. With a suite of institutional caliber alternative ETFs for investors seeking diversification and long-term performance, the Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF, symbol 1C, ONEC on the TSX is Canada's first alternatives portfolio solution, providing exposure to six alternative asset classes, 10 alternative strategies in one easy to use, one choice ETF that charges a management fee of just 0.2%. The Accelerate One Choice Alternative Portfolio ETF trades under the symbol 1C ONEC on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Yeah, and one interesting case study that I like to look at is if we uh, take a peek at the aptly named One, which IPO'd August 18th, symbol AONE, and on February 24th, they announced a deal with Mark Forged. Now that one, they came out with at the time $200 million IPO with a quarter warrant, and they're you know fairly highly regarded technolo- technology investors. But you look at where it's trading now, 1008, on a $10 nav, not necessarily a big winner. However, they were be able at the end of March to come out with the obviously named two TWO, the symbol is TWOA, and this one surprisingly warrantless. Another $200 million deal, but came with no warrants, instantly traded at a discount. In fact, we did buy some in the 980 range which offered a decent yield, and you have that protection. But ultimately, if you're buying a warrantless SPAC in the IPO, then you you have no built-in return aside from the treasury yield and trust, which, as we all know, is not what we get into this for. Right, and that's a long-term proposition, right? I mean, you could be waiting a couple of years to be able to redeem. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I know, I know that is there as a safety net, but, but that opportunity cost is, is pretty immense over that time period if it's just a bad, bad situation. Yeah, for sure. And the other interesting dynamic that I note is year to date, we've just had a massive amount of issuance, uh, about 310 IPOs raising like $100 billion, which is way more than we had all of 2020, which was obviously a record year. But this oversupply problem that we discussed, it's largely caused by the issues that have come out over the past three, four months. And one dynamic that we see, and there's two characteristics of these. So number one is market pressure selling new issues because everyone 
perhaps they're getting redemptions if you run this strategy, and they have lower warrant coverage. However, if we look at the unit prices, most of the new issue warrants, I'd say at least half are trading at or below $10, uh, anything issued in 2021. However, if we go to anything issued December 2020 or later, like a longer vintage, you'll see maybe two or three trading at or below $10. So it's like night and day if we look at pre-2021 and 2021 new issues in terms of price performance. So I think that's an interesting dynamic. Is it that one theory I have is that once units split after the 52 days, you have warrant buyers coming in trying to get some perhaps cheap warrants and then arbitragers on the common share side not really allowing those to get below 970. And so when combined, that has the effect of lifting the unit price in aggregate above $10. What are your thoughts on that? Well, one of the one of the stocks that I own and that I follow pretty closely is the Soaring Eagle. Yep. Um, the new Sloan deal. I think it's about $1.7 billion deal. SRNG. Right. So, so I bought that pretty close to its birth. And um, as we saw in the dark days of SPACs, I was able to get a really super great price for a retail guy, not, not buying direct from the sponsor. And um, it was interesting because we, we, saw, we saw a rumor come out about Ginkgo Bioworks. Yeah. And, um, you know, so immediately went to work, um, asked a couple of people online, but let's go scramble, see what we can find. And, you know, it, it's, it's the same routine that you do on all of these deals. You go and see, you know, how many series uh, of rounds did they did they raise? Who are the investors? What was the valuation per round? And you, you try to come up with some type of thesis of, on what valuation you think would be fair in your own assessment. And again, you know, we don't have we're not privy to the same type of thing that, that a pipe investor would have. Yeah. But you know, we have a pretty good idea that we can play horseshoes and hand grenades and come up with our own back-of-the-napkin kind of uh, valuation. And as soon as that happened, there was the initial pop. And you've seen it's now since sold off. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason, in my opinion, that we, we've seen it sell down and sell off is because people now realize after what happened with Sport Radar and, and, um, and you know, the Betsy Cohen fintech deals, whether it was eToro or, or Payoneer, that valuation matters. Yeah. And and when people see this 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 Ginkgo Bioworks, no matter how excited you are about Bill Gates or, or what the the mRNA technology they have and all the different, you know, super cool cutting edge stuff they have, you say, Well, they were valuing, you know, I think the rumor said something about a valuation that was a hundred percent higher than anything I could find from the last rounds of um, VC funding. Right. So, so, you know, the average retail guy, you know, whether, whether you're the, the new young guy, like in meme stocks, you know, the, the saying is nobody wants to hold bags. <laughs> and, and, you know, I get pissy with people because I say, the only reason you're holding a bag is because you bought it poorly or you weren't disciplined. You didn't have a stop. You didn't have, you didn't have a plan. So, I think after you get your face punched in a couple times, 
you have a plan. And even though Mike Tyson said everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth, yeah. you know, the last few months, some of these people got punched in the mouth. Oh, especially if they're just holding warrants. Yeah, well, welcome to my world. Thanks, thanks a lot for that, Julian. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, no, it was. It, it, it make no mistake. I think that's a, a great litmus. Not only the bottom that you called, but but that we are seeing a lot more stability uh, in full warrant portfolios. Where whereas there was literally a precipitous drop, um, you know, which is expected when you're in the downside environment. We we. Uh, at least most people that hold warrants should be aware that's that's not outlandish. I'll, I'll say that, you know, we had one recent example, and, and that was this week with the SEAH, the sports entertainment. And, and that was that was one that I had bought back in late December. So the price point was obviously in inflated times. But because of the averaging process just under a buck right before the pop, I was still able and, and, and I'm holding it still to this day because it, it does look like it's got some potential. Um, but I was still able to capture a great gain on that warrant, even with the original entry being back in late December. Yeah, thanks um, for bringing up that deal, this uh, SEAH Sports Entertainment acquisition that announced the deal with Supergroup on April 25th. And this highlights the discussion on uh, warrants as being included in units. Now, when this... IPO back in October, I was really pounding the table on it because you could buy it at a very attractive discount for the units. And I liked I liked the sponsor team, specifically Chris Shumway. I've been a long-term fan of his. They had great underwriters. It was a sizable deal, $450 million after the green shoe. But the key to this one had half of a warrant per unit. So we were buying the units at a discount. And sorry, yeah, units at a discount, getting that half warrant effectively for free. And if we look at the prices right now, the units are trading at 11.27. So that's a 12.7% return on the unit. Uh, but if you look at the common shares, they're 10.27. So that's a 2.7% return. So here, having that half warrant provided like three quarters of your return on the capital that you put into this trade. So I'm, yes, you know, that's something that I'm highly sensitive of is just that warrant coverage. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, I won't speak to you, but I have a portfolio of just warrants and it's still down to the point where it's painful to look at. <laughs> we've, we've had offline conversations of, you know, do I, it's part of a self-directed IRA. So I can't just, easily add funds to it so you know we had the conversation do i do i sell some of them and 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 take the money to average down my higher convictions but the problem is and and, and thank you for the conversations that we had my higher convictions are baseless because i would say over 90 percent of them are still pre-announced deals so yeah you can like one team better than another but you may like a team better but it might be in healthcare, which yeah. you don't particularly care for right. or it might be a worse team but um you know you own it at, at, at a better cost so so i didn't panic you know it, it's part of it's part of the overall portfolio and but i'll tell you and i supposedly know what i'm doing and i got my ass kicked in that portfolio right <laughs> so talking about it can be the wrong 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 direction for sure so you always have to be very careful with the entry prices yeah and talking about pre-deal specs this is something that i wanted to discuss and get your thoughts on 
is this the current environment, or if we go back three months ago, everything was rallying on definitive agreement. Everything was at a premium. And now basically the opposite, except for select deals. So many people exclaiming that SPACs are dead, but we are seeing that desired SPAC pop on certain transactions. We mentioned rice, we mentioned MUDs. So specifically, what's working and what's not working in the current environment? I think the early stage plays where they're forecasting, they have like zero, or they're currently pre not only pre-profit, but pre-revenue as well, and they're forecasting like five billion five years out. I think those types of highly speculative deals are out of style these days. I think we'll be seeing fewer and fewer of those, like the electric vehicle deals and things of that nature. But if we analyze rice and mud specifically, that gives us some hints on what is doing well in the current environment. So number one, solid current fundamentals in terms of revenue, profit, EBITDA, an attractive EBITDA multiple, and an attractive growth rate. So double-digit growth at preferably a reasonable EBITDA multiple, i.e., you know, 13 times or lower. The other thing that they both feature is what I call the cherry on top, you know, that sexiness that gets someone's interest peak aside from the fundamentals. So on the top steel, that is NFTs. I mean, people view NFTs as this massive, sexy growth area. And that really piques investor attention and gets them more interested above and beyond just the fundamentals of the deal. Then looking at rice, it's the notion of decarbonization and the growth opportunities that come with that. So that's really my opinion on what's working with respect to definitive agreements, SPAC mergers in the current market environments. What are your thoughts? I'm going to say that disruptive tech is probably the only thing that's not going to fall under that purview. Uh, I, I think you can get far more speculative with uh, technology that with a uh, a newfound global market share can can truly become a monster overnight. And, and so in a lot of those cases with disruptive tech, uh, I'd say artificial intelligence in, in that same that same basket. Um, I, I do think we're going to see some valuations that are, you know, what what a conservative investor would consider pie in the sky. Uh, but but looking at the current markets and, and let's say just for instance the AMD uh, you know rally and the, this this overall semiconductor shortage shortage for what it's not to slow down future growth it's to explode uh, and I think that's the reality as all these these ramp ups occur to solve supply chain issues it's it's gearing up for a much bigger future where all these things are implemented um, so for me that's that's where I speculate on is is the future and on these disruptive techs on the, the innovative techs on a lot of fintech uh, i see big big things coming um that are going to incorporate you know whether it be crypto uh general blockchain with the nfts um i think collectibles will be hot i think augmented reality is probably in that reality that that realm as well um but i think there's so many industries that are just not being encapsulated in the the potential targets um, and I think some of the small IPOs are overlooked with the reality that there are a hell of a lot more targets under a billion dollars that can be just as much of a home run uh, with the low float that those pr- provide normally. That's just my two cents. Hey, Jeff, you know, that's, that's an interesting point. You know, a lot of people that I speak with and everybody's talking about the disruptive tech and the unicorn 
and there's so many specs and there's not enough of these companies to go around. Well, again, you know, specs come in lots of different shapes and sizes. Right. And one of the one of the specs that I've been following, you know, and I've traded in and out of it, is BurgerFi. And you know, they make hamburgers. But but, you know, again, I don't have a position right now, so you know, I'm not I'm not pimping or talking my book. No, that Opez warrant was one of the best of all time. It was fantastic. And and but again, you know, people talk about different deals. People talk about SPACs and pie in the sky. Again, Bergify is still a young company, but it, let's put it against Shake Shack. And I'm not sitting at my computer, so I'm just going to randomly blurt out numbers to, to the best of my recollection. You know, Shake Shack has a, 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 a over a billion dollars. Uh, you can even look. They have like some crazy billion-something dollar market cap, which is fantastic. The stock's over $100 a share. Well, they make burgers and fries. And you can see Burgerfy, and they added Martha Stewart to the board. And if you look at their board, it's the guy who took Burger King to South America. You know, it, it's the CFO who, who got Claire stores to something like 1,200 stores. And again, if my numbers are off, I'm just going off memory. Right, right, right. But, but the fact is, it's not disruptive technology. It's not hard to understand. It, it's not 2026 revenue. It's a burger joint. Yeah. And, and you're going to open three locations simultaneously in multiple different markets, and your your revenue growth is going to be explosive. Right. So, so all this capital. So again, you know, it doesn't have to be online gaming. It doesn't have to be betting. It doesn't have to be EV. It doesn't have to be charging. It could be a guy who makes a burger. You know, there's there's like five different chicken places. You know, raising canes. Right. Kids go nuts over that. I'd never heard of it until, you know, a few years ago when we moved. But this place has a cult-like following. And there's plenty. It's a big world. There's plenty of things like that. And even if a SPAC goes and takes some company, let's say they go and take some ice cream chain or chicken company or somebody who makes, you know, hats. The fact of the matter is, if they grow, and yeah. as... Julian was saying earlier, if they're showing double-digit growth and their EBITDA and their margins are right, it doesn't matter. The, the retail and institutional investor will find them. I think so so that's, what, that's what – I think that's one of the things is if you're asking me what I'm thinking the future of SPACs now, that it's, it's a never-ending evolution. Yeah. I think that's going to be the next evolution is we're going to start finding – whether it's an In-N-Out burger or, you know, whatever. Something you know of, but it's not a, it's not a unicorn. It's not a billion dollars. Oh, certainly. And I have the perfect example of that prior to touching on it. I do want to open up the floor for questions. So if you do have a question, raise your hand. And I'm going to make this point in that, Guru, what you're discussing, let's look no further than Playboy. That stock's at $50. That was a $10 SPAC. It was a $381 million enterprise value. This was not a you know, tech unicorn or anything of that nature, right? Like, so to the extent- failed. It was a multiple time public company that failed miserably. And we were honestly, we were pissed that we didn't have warrants on that one. So we did buy the rights, just to be clear. <laughs> I hated that deal. 
right either. Yeah, well, it was quite the dark horse deal, and no one really expected it to take off, but it did. Um, so welcoming some questions to the show. We'll start with Ken, uh, if you want to direct your question. Guys, uh, thanks for sharing what you know. I admit I am new to all of this, and I have a rookie question. When it comes to companies issuing the spec stock and the private companies merging with them, who do they think is an ideal customer to buy their shares on the public market? Like, I'm a small-time nobody retail buyer, and I want to be a stone-cold, ruthless trader like my heroes. But I kind of get attached to the stocks, too, because I do the research and all. So, like, who is their ideal customer, and what might I learn about that as I'm making decisions? Guru, you want to take this one? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, Ben, because when I'm thinking about that, we have all these different sponsors, some we know by name. Um, you know, some have a little bit of a cult following, some have, you know, groupies, whatever you want to call them. But the interesting thing that, that you just brought up is who do they want to speak to? So, for example, and I never met Michael Klein, but I know people who have met him and talked to him. They said Michael Klein would never try to deal with a retail investor and doesn't care. And then you go and you see guys like Chamath, or you see the the, the uh, you see Jeremy and um, and his brother Zachary at Forest Road, who are all about the retail investor. So you know, different sponsor groups have different avenues and different. I'm always going to say pedigrees of the direction that they go into. So you know, if you know Michael Klein's past is you know. The banker at the big banks are bringing home the big deals. You know, he may be very disconnected and, and really not have any connection at all with the retail investor. But, you know, you see the Forest Road guys and, and they're doing clubhouses to help people understand SPACs because that's the retail person that they're trying to get a hold of. So it's pretty interesting that you say that because I think that as we continue down the SPAC road with so much competition, you're going to see different sponsor groups differentiating themselves by the market they go after. And I'd be really curious to know what Jeff and Julian think about that. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, that I think ideally they're looking for uh, people who are going to invest early and ride through the combination and trust that their leadership has brought forward a deal that ultimately will allow the vision to be seen through by the management, by the this back team so that all parties involved, you know, make, make great profits. I think that's really what they're going for. I, I can't see a big benefit to, you know, the, the day trader for any of these environments. Um, I, I, I don't, you know, for, for me, that would be the thing. I can't say I'm their ideal because I'm normally out after the announcement. Maybe I'm back in, Oh, a month and a half later as we run up to the vote, if it looks attractive. Um, but, but I'm, I'm playing it on the swings normally. Um, so I, I would say they really are looking for the ideal institutional hold that can, can hang on through some length of time, like a pipe and, and have confidence in the deal that they put together and not just be looking to make a quick buck. Yeah. I think there's two dynamics here and I agree with both those points. And I recently spoke to two sponsors that took a different approach. So one had on our podcast, Danny Rice, 
of rice acquisition. And, you know, they, he did the uh, Aria Energy Arkea LFG deal, which has been very well received and a very tough tape. And he said they specifically did not market their IPO because ultimately a SPAC's shares come from the IPO investors. You know, they hold a float and the only way retail get to hold it is if the IPO investors exit and sell to, to retail, right? And so Rice specifically said that they did not target your standard New York hedge funds, a Toronto hedge funds buying SPAC IPOs or Accelerate, <laughs> uh, but they targeted specifically long-term energy investors that they had relationships with, such that, you know, in their SPAC IPO, they're actually targeting investors that would hold past the business combination because they had faith in management and they wanted exposure to their mandate, which is decarbonization of the grid. And I think that's one reason why it's traded so well, because they had the type of institutional investor base at IPO that weren't going to plow out of the stock if it popped 50% or whatever, because they had a longer term view of it. Now, the second group, uh, second sponsor group that I had a good discussion with on the podcast, Zachary and Jeremy, uh, Tarika, Force Road. So they're coming, uh, that episode will be released on Monday. So they have, as Guru indicated, like this. Uh, massive investor outreach program. They're very transparent and doing a lot of stuff, whether it be Clubhouse, social media, et cetera, because they know that there is a large retail shareholder base. So they want to be open and transparent and talk about, you know, what's really going on and sort of democratize the space, open it up to others above and beyond the institutional investors. And I like that approach as well. You know, it beats the approach of, not saying anything, not being at all transparent and doing a deal and everyone hating it because there's no information. So, you know, those are my thoughts on that. Uh, so thanks, Ken, for the question. I'll pass it along to James. Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for taking my questions and, and thank you for doing this. Um, had just two, two questions. Uh, the first is around the, the SEC warrant uh, discussion. So I was wondering if um, you know, a lot of you guys have talked to sponsors and to target companies. So if you are a, a private company considering the SPAC route as a pass to the public markets, does the fact that the new accounting guidance has an impact, the fair, the fair value, the market value, the warrant will have an impact on your bottom line and your, your earnings per share that perhaps as a public company you're, you're managing to and, you know, analysts are, are, are estimating, um, and that being outside your control, does that does that make the SPAC route potentially less attractive or is that not even a consideration in this, these kinds of decisions? I'm going to say that on the outset initially, for, for me, I don't, I don't see that that's going to make the largest difference. I, I believe the dilutive effects of a warrant uh, for anybody involved in, in the process uh, are, are well understood. And, and so I, I think we're going to result in a footnote here, uh, another footnote in, in you know, the filings. I, I really don't see a significant change long-term uh, from any of this. Well, let, let me jump in there from from the side of a guy who used to take companies public. The, the, the simple answer is it depends. A lot of these people do not care about any accounting-type hit that it's going to give them, especially if you're talking about somebody who's pre-revenue. You know, these, these, these accounting... These accounting hits are just procedural more than anything. And the fact of the matter is, if they can get access to capital, 
they'll worry about the accounting and, and, and the earnings per share and the hit that they may take somewhere down the road. That, that, that's insignificant. Yeah, I think one other thing that I'd like to add, you constantly hear about, oh, dilution from warrants, but at the end of the day, warrants have a strike of 1150 and so it's basically like a financing at $11.50, which is 15% higher than the pipe financing that we usually see at $10. So they're not necessarily a bad thing. They're just kind of like a secondary financing. And the other thing, you know, if they're in the money, then they'll likely be called or exercised, whatever it is. So if, if the company's doing well in the market, then it wouldn't be a concern because they tend to get rid of the warrants relatively quickly after closing. And, and on that note right there, anybody that does hold the, uh, uh, the MP warrants, be aware, uh, as of the 30th tomorrow, they have crossed their year since IPO, and those warrants will be uh, on the plate for a possible redemption, um, which can have adverse price reactions. So just, just be aware of that. Yeah, and that's one that has done well. So a good warning for those holding the MQ Especially warrants. with new share offerings as well as the, the convertible debenture, it kind of it kind of points towards all signs saying that they're gonna they're gonna redeem those. Uh, just as a matter of course, that'd be my guess. Okay, great. Yeah, hey Julian, just real quick, the way the way that I look at it, and again, I'm not telling anyone what to do, but I just look at the warrants as you know, you see SPACs upsize all the time. This is an upsize with. You know, at a premium. Yeah. And and right from the day that the that the first S one comes out, you know what the unit size is. So you know, I bake that into my valuation anyway. So right. I, I don't I don't see warrants as being dilutive. Yeah, makes sense. Thanks for the question, James. We'll pass it along to Parveen. Hey guys, um, thanks for uh, organizing this uh, call. Um, hey Guru, um, I attend all of his <laughs> clubhouses. Um, but I have a question uh, on warrant pricing. Jeff mentioned the keys to get them at the right price. We know for units and for commons, we should try to get them as close to NAV. How do we figure out what is a reasonable price for a warrant? Um, for, for the uh, IPOs that have come this year and that have already split the unit, uh, warrants are trading close to a dollar, say. But if they do not find a deal for, let's say, a year, I was looking at some of the SPACs that are more than a year old, getting close to, say, one and a half year or so. Some of them have had the, their price warrant prices of, say, 20 cents, 25 cents. So is it possible that the new unit splits that are trading at a dollar right now for the warrants could go down to 50 cents if they do not find a deal in a year. And if so, what should um, someone who invest in warrants, like how to price it right? Well, I mean, I would say originally most of the action that we see on on solely the, the warrant side, so if we're coming in just to buy the warrants, most of the action when the unit splits is, is rarely positive. Um, so I, I typically don't even touch it for the first couple days um, unless it's on a stink bid hoping to get it at some just unreasonable discount because there are people literally dumping them um, that, that either just didn't have a large allocation of just don't care about, you know, several hundred bucks or whatever compared to the, the tens of thousands or whatnot. You know, so, so it, it's, it's really dependent on every spec 
Uh, I know that's hard to say, and and that's it, it's it's not that they're all trading around a dollar because because they're definitely not. There's quite a few in the fifty cent range. There's quite a few. There's there's even some in the twenty cent range now. If they don't announce the deal in a year, for us that starts raising the anticipation, not lowering it. Um, if you look back to just September of last year, most of the big explosive events were actually occurring with ones we we were. I'm, I'm going to say everybody that was watching the space, we were all aware some of these names had been around for a very long time. Doing doing the due diligence on, say, Trident, which has now you know got the Lottery.com deal, or the Big Rock Partners, or the Newborn Acquisition, they all they all really had sketchy pasts. They were old, uh, and and so I, I don't think that that necessarily is the litmus. I think the litmus is is. The individual investors link the time that they're looking for the exit. Whether you're in it for a year, two years, three years, what what your percentage that you're looking to get from it. Again, we're all back to the speculation at that point. What's the industry? What's the sector? Uh, what what do you think it can do? And that's why there's no set price on these. Otherwise, you'd use Black Scholes, which puts them all at four dollars roughly. I mean, I think it's a little less, but so that's not accurate. So you really got to kind of. Uh, weigh several different factors. With any luck, you've got a little bit of price performance to gauge from. Uh, you can't you can't even associate a trend with it until you've got more than several points. So day one, day two is is really just a shot in the dark. Maybe you get lucky, maybe you don't. But for us, we're looking for consistent and normally declining performance that's opening up an opportunity. Uh, rarely do I buy it um, before there's a drop in the warrant. And, and sometimes that means I don't get the warrant at all. I'll, I'll be completely clear. Um, in my methodology, there are times where I like the company, uh, I want to buy the warrant, but I never see a good entry. And there's, you know, 500 others to choose from. So I just pick one of the others that has a good entry. Um, and, and so for me, over time, I've found that, that the price is really relative to not only the market conditions at the time, but you have to be willing to uh, to walk away from ones where you're not seeing a good price that even in bad markets like now is not abysmal. Um, that was the case for me with the SEAH. I felt like I got it at a good price in December, uh, went through the ringer with it, and, and still ended up coming out of the transaction clean uh, when they finally did announce. So it, it's... It, I, I hate to say that there's no set determining way to, to figure out which warrant. Back when we only had 50, man, it was a hell of a lot easier. But when you've got this many, there are really too many factors at play with any single one of them at any time um, that you can't give a broad consensus, just do this and it'll be right, because that's almost never going to be right, if, if that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> that being said, I, I the lack of a DA doesn't bother me, but... I don't want to be in them for a year normally. Uh, normally, I, I'm looking for exits before then because I, I'm looking for that pre-DA phase where something's active. So I try and avoid ones that are stagnating. I try and avoid ones that have uh, lackluster amounts of volume, um, thing, things that look illiquid, that don't look like they have any interest level at all. Uh, and, and therefore, it typically raises the, the you know, I'm going to say the the expectation or the time horizon it speeds it up a little bit when they're active seems like the management teams are a little more eager to get something done 
All right, great. Well, that's a fantastic place to wrap things up. I'd like to thank everyone who listened to the State of the Markets. It was a great discussion. Thank you to the folks who asked questions. And obviously, thank you to Jeff, CommonSoft Warrants, and the Guru and Mike for sharing your knowledge, your insights, and your thoughts on State of the Markets. I really enjoyed the discussion today. And thank you, everyone, for joining. I hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.